Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest that is definitely gonna teach us, you know, a few things, you know, about the building and scaling and financing of a hyper growth business, especially when it comes down to online marketplaces around lending. So I guess say without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Kelvin Teo. Welcome to the show. Hi Ale, thanks for having me. Uh, honored to be here. So you are originally from Singapore, is that right? I was actually born in Malaysia, but well, went to Singapore at the age of 15 on a scholarship. Got it. So tell us about your upbringing. How was life growing up there in, you know, in Malaysia and then you know, going to Singapore? Sure. So I came, so I'm a Malaysian Chinese. I came from a small town in southern Malaysia called Senai, whereby the main, uh, main economic industry is uh, oil palm as well as uh, factories. Um, so very honored uh, to to be born in a family of of teachers. So my ma- mother is a teacher, and so she values education a lot. I was very fortunate that at the age of fifteen, um, I received a scholarship given by the Singapore government called the ASEAN Scholarship, whereby they kind of attract um, t- talents from from all across Southeast Asia to basically study in Singapore, and then of course eventually settle down in Singapore, and that's why I did. Got it. And obviously, no kidding. I mean, uh, talking about universities, you know, Wharton. UPenn, then Harvard Business School. So I think that your parents are happy. You came through. <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate. So I actually did my undergrad mostly at uh, the National University of Singapore um, because of a scholarship given by the Singapore government. Uh, but one thing that perhaps was special was that they had this entrepreneurship program called the NUS Overseas College, whereby I could exchange for one year at UPenn Wharton while working part-time at a startup. And that's where the whole um, entrepreneurial interest uh, was born. And that that program has also became the powerhouse of entrepreneurs in, in Singapore uh, since then. So very fortunate that after graduation, um, took my first job at Accenture as a management consultant because I believe that but given how much time is spent at work, if it can help companies to be better companies, it can really improve the lives of people. Um, so started my career at Accenture, moved on to McKinsey, and uh, to and then KKR Capstone to, to really learn how do I manage a board, how do I transform a company. Uh, went to Harvard Business School and was very fortunate to be among the two Malaysians that I meet every single year. Um, that's when I chanced upon the idea of peer-to-peer lending. And we found that if I adapt it to the local context of Southeast Asia, 
we could really solve the problem of SME financing, which is a big problem in Southeast Asia. And, you know, part of your background, you know, something that is very interesting here is that you have the consulting and then you have the investing. The consulting from Accenture and McKinsey and then also the investing from KKR. Why is it that, you know, like most of the founders that I speak with that have built like massive companies, they either have done, you know, consulting or, you know, investing. And you've done both. I've actually, I've been... So at KKR, I was actually more on the operational side at KKR Capstone. Um, so I have enough exposure to investing. I wouldn't claim to be an expert in investment myself. So I think the whole idea that I had was that um, starting at Accenture, it was good for in terms of consulting. But moving on to McKinsey, I thought, hey, everyone can think of, do strategy. I wanted to be better than the others. So I actually focused on operations transformation at McKinsey. Um, but after doing that for a year plus, I realized that, so I was at McKinsey for two years and spent one year on operations transformation for a bank in Indonesia. Um, but realizing that, hey, not just manage, uh, operations transformation is important, I realized that if I want to build a sustainable uh, a sustainable business, I'll need to be, be able to manage board and investors. And that's why I move on to KKR Capstone. So I do think that the whole training experience um, that that uh, consulting provides is a very good, uh, good starting point for for founders and entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia, especially given that there aren't many uh, entrepreneurs um, to start off in Southeast Asia. So we are kind of the first generation fintech founders in Southeast Asia. So then let's talk about funding societies. So funding societies, you know, like really is something that, that it sparks out, you know, like during your your time no, at, the, at, at Harvard Business School. So so tell us about how you stumble across the this problem and how you go about, you know, assembling the the band, the founding team, and and then also bringing the the idea to life. Sure. So so we were actually, in all candor when we when I decided to to go to Harvard Business School, the whole idea wasn't to start a company. It was really to just have fun for two years while getting a degree in the process. Um, so I think what really inspired uh, me to act was a talk given by Peter Thiel. Um, at that time, he was marketing his uh, his book called Zero to One in our in our in our campus. And one thing that he said, which really left a, sh- a huge impression on me, is that hey, Asia probably doesn't need a lot of innovation; it needs execution because uh, some uh, because Asia is so far behind in terms of overall innovation. And that really uh, struck a note on me that hey, if uh, US and Europe are so far ahead in terms of innovation, how can I potentially study one of the most study some of the innovative companies in uh, in, a, in the US and bring it back to Southeast Asia? So, so I basically look up at the top 50 most innovative companies in the U.S. in the last few years and, and evaluate it based on three, three criteria in my mind. I think the first is that, hey, the startup should be solving a problem that, that I'm very passionate about. So, and, it's because, and the second criteria was that, hey, there must be, it must be a huge problem that we're solving can be, so that we can be very impactful to Southeast Asia. And I think the third one is having a path, reasonable path to be number one in that particular space. And when we started a whole all, all these companies, the only one company that satisfied all these three criteria was peer-to-peer lending. And at that time, it was a huge thing in the US. So I took the opportunity to, to visit the various peer-to-peer lenders in the US and realized that, hey, the model itself is very interesting, but you need some adaptation to, salvage, to, to meet the needs of Southeast Asia. So, so Matt uh, raised the idea to my co-found, to, to, my, to my classmate, uh, Raynaud Vijaya, who was my classmate at uh, Harvard Business School at that point in time. And it struck a note, uh, note on him that, hey, um, it is something that she's passionate about as well. And he believes that this business, this business model can really help to solve this problem in Southeast Asia. So, but we also realized that timing is the biggest uh, factor in terms of the success or failure of a company. 
Yet at the same time, uh, we could not drop out of school because Asian parents. So we decided to start a company while we were still in school. So we kind of work around 8 p.m. to to, to 3, 4 a.m. Um, in the morning um, because of the 12-hour time difference between Boston and Singapore. And then we go to class at around 8, 9, 8, 9 a.m. Um, because Harvard does not allow uh, students to actually skip classes. And you will feel your 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 your, your uh, your degree if you skip too many classes. So, so one one thing led to the other. We started a comp- we started a company out of school. We were very fortunate to receive um, seed funding during our summer holidays, and um, and then um, sequo- and that round was led by Alpha GWC. Um, and then when as as the company grew, um, Sequoia reached out and um, just before they wanted to give us an offer for our Series A. Um, they were surprised to realize to find to to find out that hey, we were still students, and not only students, we were students at US as opposed to be in Southeast Asia. So so they were very kind to to continuously keep in touch with us, and upon graduation, they gave us our term our Series A term sheet, um, and that's how how the company has uh, uh, blossomed ever since. And how big was the Series A? It was seven million US dollars. So I think by by US and uh, Europe and Chinese standards are probably quite low, but at that point in time. 7 million USD was among, was the biggest um, uh, round for Series A uh, at that point in time in Southeast Asia. Because how much capital have you guys raised to date for funding societies? So I think from an equity perspective, we have raised approximately 58 million USDs um, in the last five years. But I think more importantly is how much we have served and helped the SMEs. And in the last five years, we have given out more than 1 billion US dollars of loans to SMEs. Um, and that's across 45,000 small medium businesses um, across Singapore, Indonesia, as well as Malaysia. And uh, that made, it, made us the biggest platform in the region, uh, perhaps three time, approximately three times the size of our closest competitor and as big as some of the smaller banks in the region. And, and I guess uh, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of funding society, funding societies? That's a very good question. I think so. Funding societies is basically an SME digital financing platform. So we give loans to small medium businesses. So typically short-term working capital loans, and these loans are typically crowdfunded or balance sheet funded by individuals and/or institutions who are really looking for a for a stable, liquid form of fixed income um, to really protect their wealth or perhaps grow their wealth. So, so really solving a short-term financing problem for the SMEs as well as a short-term liquid in fixed income investment opportunity for the investors. And in terms of like building a, a lending, you know, marketplace, obviously here in the U.S. it's a beast when it comes to, to regulatory, you know, hurdles, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I mean, you need to have the lawyers right away, you know, helping. I guess what, what, what is the difference with doing a business of this nature, you know, especially with these types of restrictions, let's say in Asia? So that is actually a, Southeast Asia is actually really fortunate because it could learn from a, from lessons uh, and an experience from US, Europe, and China. So bec- so when we first started funding societies, uh, there was no regulation whatsoever in the region. And but because we noticed that hey, uh, the the evolution in China that if there is no proper regulations, um, some of the more reckless player could potentially ruin the reputation of, of the industry. And that was why we proactively studied the regulations across the world and then proposed to the regulators and self-regulated ourselves even while the regulators was pondering what are the reg- what form of regulations to adopt. And we were very fortunate that regulators have been very responsive and, and was, was very keen to engage us. And that has helped us to actually be the first player to have secured a license in Singapore 
Indonesia as well as Malaysia. And I guess uh, also to put into perspective and, and to put in parallel how developed is the venture ecosystem there in Asia compared to you know what you've seen and, and what you experienced in the US? So it is very young and nascent. I think it is uh, it is pro- it's probably not more than five or probably eight, seven, eight years old um, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the age of the industry. Um, so when we first started uh, funding societies, that was also when the government seeded some, Singapore government seeded some venture capital funds um, to to start their very first fund. Um, so I think ever since the venture capital for, uh, scene has developed uh, meaningfully, so such that there are quite a number of uh, seed round Series A and even Series B funds um, that can support the the, uh, the startups in the in the region. But I think increasingly, what we realized the value of DEF was actually Series C, whereby the the startups are bigger than what perhaps a venture capital firm would be willing to invest, um, but still smaller than what a private equity investors would be would be looking at. So and that's why you see a lot of startups in Southeast Asia. They actually start raise fundraising from Hong Kong, from from Japan, from Korea, uh, as their alternative source of uh, venture capital funds. And increasingly, we also see some come to the US um, to speak to investors who maybe who have more appreciation or interest to uh, towards Southeast Asia. And when you're building a company of this nature, I mean, a marketplace is is really a beast because you have the supply and the demand. So. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about, you know, really building it up and, and making sure that you were addressing both sides of the equation? Sure. I think it is a constantly balancing act. And the question is always how do you start off because you need to have both sides available. And there are many strategies, uh, strategy books that talk about how you can solve a marketplace problem. But I think for us, how we have solved it is by first um, getting, a, getting uh, power up in one or getting a solving one side of the equation before moving on to the other. So in our case, um, we realized that from a crowdfunding side, from a funding side, it's probably the easier problem to solve. So that's why we actually put in our own capital to, to, to fund SMEs at the start. So even though when we launched in, launched in June 2015, we were giving out we were crowdfunding loans for the SMEs. But at that point in time, effectively, the crowd was just 2%, my co-founder and I. So we funded the loans, um, in the, uh, all the loans in the initial years. Of course, there were many loans, but it has helped to kickstart um, and the, the business, and slowly through PR, we have made it, uh, we have managed to gain a lot of traction, um, such that now whenever we talk about uh, marketplace lending or peer-to-peer lending, chances are the first name that you hear will be funding societies or Modalku, which is our Bahasa name in Indonesia. And when you're looking to to raise capital for a, for a business of this nature, what are the typical expectations that the investors have? And I'm sure that that those you know have a varied, you know, like substantially from where you were at a seed stage to, you know, doing your last round, which was a series C. So how, so how, that, how has that, you know, those expectations, you know, uh, shifted and perhaps a, a change over time? Sure. I think the, perhaps the biggest, uh, biggest shift uh, that happened in recent times is, of course, is the whole WeWork uh, episode, right? Such that um, the, the focus has shifted from growth to towards profitability. And that, uh, that that's the same shift that we see in the US and Europe uh, and China is also the same shift that we see in Southeast Asia. So I think when, when we first started, of course, a lot of the focus is, is really about aspiration, it's really about good founders um, and then eventually move on to proper traction and finally market leadership and of course in recent times profitability. And that's, and that's why I think, but at the same time, also recognize, reckon that 
Southeast Asia has a much more conducive is a much more conducive market for SME financing or peer marketplace lending. So we do reckon that um, even uh, that we could actually we will break even actually next year, even though we are only approximately six years old. While many other similar platforms in other parts of the world has struggled to be profitable even after ten years. Very nice, very nice. And I guess uh, as you see the the space, you know, develop, and you know, as you're seeing also, you know, maturing, you know, like what's happening with SMEs, you know, like there and with the ecosystem. Like, where do you think that you know things are heading, you know, uh, on on the segment as a whole? Sure, I do think that there's a consolidation happening in 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 the in the space, primarily because of uh, uh, of a COVID um, that has prompted perhaps the less funded or less pref- uh, the weaker performing platforms to gradually go away. But also we see the emergence of um, the digital bank. So we are one of the three top contenders, or at least as reported by the media, um, for the wholesale digital bank license in Singapore in a consortium with Xiaomi, the IoT manufacturer, as well as the local, as well as SP Group, the local uh, monopoly for utilities, and then final utilities distribution, as well as uh, AMTD, the investment bank. So, so the emergence of the consolidation of the fintech market, as well as the emergence of the digital bank license, um, I would I be, allows a lot of the fintech players to actually serve SMEs in a more holistic manner, um, not just providing financing, but also providing all forms of products to meet uh, the needs of the SMEs in a more holistic way. Um, and I think this is generally going to be positive and great for the for the for Southeast Asia because this is also the SMEs is also the segment that has been. Uh, generally neglected by traditional financial institutions, and and also for the for the size of of your company, how many how many employees do you guys have? We have three hundred fifty people across four countries. Very cool. And did you see like any type of difference or or similarities with the mindset in the US, or or is it harder when it comes to recruiting? And and I'll put you an example. I'm originally from Spain, where after university, you know, you're expected to either become a lawyer or a, or a banker, not to really join a startup. So, so have you seen like some some challenges as well when it comes to building up the team? Sure, I think that there, there has been. Um, so, so I recall when we first started off, um, when uh, start started off the company, um, when when someone hear me doing interviews, they would ask me, "Hey, how, aren't you interviewing someone? Why are you um, why are you selling yourself so much?" And I, I so I explained that, "Hey." Startup is very new in Southeast Asia. Not only you need, you are assessing them, but the candidates are also assessing you, and therefore it's actually a true that the the whole element of selling the sharing your vision and and the direction is extremely important. And there are episodes whereby the the interviewees may be really excited about the opportunity, but after speak, going home um, to speak to their spouse, suddenly it became a bad idea to join a startup. So so we start when we first started the company in twenty fifteen. That was kind of the scene of Southeast Asia, whereby startups are generally seen as um, as not the not the first option that uh, that people would choose for as a as a form of career, but I think the last few years that has changed quite significantly with um with the rise of many uh unicorn startups and a lot of successful cases or not uh, several successful cases in the region, um making such that uh, joining a startup becomes something that's pretty fashionable, pretty cool, um which itself creates a different problem, um, because people may not join a startup for the right reasons. But of course, with COVID nineteen, there's also, there's uh, there's a potential shift back towards safety, whereby some startups um, may may be going through a more turbulent time, and therefore, um, there's a flight towards safety to, for for the typical uh, government linked companies or even MNCs as a form of a career career uh, career choice. And also in this case, I mean, you you 
very recently did the um, the Series C round uh, of financing. I'm wondering, like, what what is that shift or what is that change from early stage to growth stage? You know, especially if you're like in 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 places like Singapore or Malaysia or Indonesia, where you guys are operating. Sure, I think for the change from us, uh, from us from an early stage to a growth stage company, I think what the key focus is really in terms of building a scalable and a scalable and sustainable business. So when we first started the company, um, or rather when, when we were early, um, the goal was primarily to 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 be market leader. And um, I think when we closed Series B about two years ago, which was led by SoftBank Ventures for around 25 million USD, um, we were approximately 40% ahead of our closest competitor. Um, but I think fast forward by the end of last year, uh, we were approximately three times the size of our closest competitor. But as we as we jump into fundraising conversations, being big and being number one with a decisive lead is not sufficient. Um, even equally important was that, hey, how is our unit economics for each of our product lines and what is our path towards profitability? Um, and that that has been that and that is something that perhaps uh, marks the biggest change from say a series B company to a series C company in Southeast Asia. Got it. And I guess for you too, as a, you've been growing the business uh, and also growing the employee count and, and yourself too as a leader, right? Because I guess that when you go from one stage to or from one cycle to another cycle on the on the on the company's life, uh, you also yourself as the founder and, and and the leader of the business, you need to as well reinvent yourself. So mm-hmm. so how have you gone about doing such things? Sure, I think that's extremely important because I realize the skills, the skill sets, and of course the personalities that's required for each stage of a company is very different. So I think to me there are really two, three areas that we have tried to keep ourselves up to mark. Um, be it in terms of uh, from a personal perspective, there's of course a lot of re- reading, um, as well as speaking to people, so that you don't have you can leverage on other people's lessons and mistakes rather than your own lessons and mistakes, which are oftentimes more costly. But of course at the same time. I think a lot of it is leading by example, leading in the front, such that you can really, uh, especially when a company becomes bigger, um, because one major lesson that we have learned is that as the company becomes bigger, you may actually rely on professional uh, hires or professional managements, but nothing beats being at the front line, um, leading the charge uh, to get with with uh, with your comrades that are closest to your customers. Got it. And obviously for you now, I mean, it's a, it's been a, a pretty incredible ride, you know, and, and, and obviously like big vision for this. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up five years later. So incredible, incredible snooze, right? And, and you wake up in a world where the vision of funding societies is fully realized. What does that world look like? So what that, what that world looks like is that every SMEs who are, re- who are a, a, even a new company, if they want to start a company, they can just sign up to our platform and they can immediately get a bank account as well as a full suite service software to really support um, their operations, so making starting a company, running a company, and subsequently expanding their company across Southeast Asia a lot easier and seamless. And I do hope, do hope that Southeast Asia can really follow the path of where, where Germany is, whereby um, we can transform the economy from an MNC or a state-led economy to an SME-driven economy. And I'm not talking about, hey, small small SMEs that are not profitable or not doing well, but rather high-tech, profitable, uh, highly productive SMEs in Southeast Asia. Because I do reckon that the window of opportunity to, uh, to uplift Southeast Asia is, is, is relatively short. Um, that currently, the, there's a lot of, uh, the population is relatively young and 
thanks to digitalization as well as, as thanks to the opening of regulations, uh, it allows fintech companies like us to emerge and really to reach SMEs and to serve SMEs and evaluate SMEs in a very effective and efficient manner digitally, which previously there wasn't such an option. Um, and I genuinely think that if we can really help SMEs to grow, um, we can really uplift the uh, uplift economy and, re- and the living standards of Southeast Asia. And that was also why we have insisted on calling ourselves funding societies, even though initially when we first named ourselves funding societies, the name was rejected by the government because society is a gazetted word. Um, but we highlighted that, hey, we're not helping here to be to fund one society. We're here to cover whole Southeast Asia as uh, so hence societies. Um, and, I, and I do think that within five years' time, we can reach the goal that uh, at least made very huge steps towards uh, transforming and uplifting the economy. Very cool. And, and obviously, you know, now, you know, after, you know, all this time, I mean, now you've been at it for about five years, you know, the, the ups and downs, the lessons learned, you know, everything. You know, I'm sure that, that you know, there's a lot, you know, a long way that, that you have come, you know, like as an entrepreneur as well. So I wanted to ask you, you know, a question that I always ask the, the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Kelvin, you know, like maybe that younger Kelvin that was still at Harvard Business School and, and envisioning a world where, you know, he could launch something and, and make, you know, something meaningful, you know, as a business, what would be that one piece of advice, you know, that you would give to that younger self uh, before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? I think I, I would trust I would trust my judgment call a lot more in all candor because being a first time entrepreneur in a region whereby there aren't many entrepreneurs, uh, interest interestingly everyone has this um, uh, belief that they can give very good advice to founders even though they may not have started a company themselves, and and as a as a young entrepreneur at times we over, overthink topics or we uh, or, or decisions rather than necessarily trusting our own best judgment call and I find that. In a lot of times, that conviction and, and faith to make the judgment call, even in the absence of significant data or, uh, or in in the in in the apps in 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 scenarios where there's a lot of uncertainty, I think that that uh, decisive decisioning can actually be a lot more impactful, even if it's at the cost of some mistakes along the way, because um the, uh, because the overall re- net results of of driving the company in the right direction, in, in, in a specific direct in a specific direction, um, which may not necessarily be democratically popular, I think it's, it allows the company to actually move forward faster, and oftentimes it bring it helps everyone t- uh, to perform better as well. Very cool. And for the folks that are listening, Kelvin, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure, you can you can come to our website fundingsocieties.com. I, and if you key into the to the chat bot um, at the right hand right hand lower corner, uh, oftentimes the message will be passed to me. So fundingsocieties.com, Kelvin Teo. Amazing. Well, Kelvin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks, Lale. Really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.